following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. It's a privilege to be here with you guys, and uh, we are sister churches, but it's been a while since the two sisters have seen each other. And so it's a joy to be with you again. And I, I hope that God will meet with us this morning in person and online. I, I apologize. I wish I could linger here with you after the service, but we have our quarterly leaders meeting back at Harvest at 1 o'clock. And so I'm going to need to jet out of here shortly after I preach. I apologize in advance because I would love to sit around and, uh, and talk with you all after the service. So let's kind of get right into it. Um, At our church, I've been preaching a series called Follow Jesus, and this is the message that concluded that series. And I know that every message really should be on the theme of following Jesus, but this was a series particularly aimed at rousing us from this idea of hanging around Jesus, admiring Jesus, being big fans of Jesus, and yet not really following him. One of the more popular terms being used instead of Christian is Christ follower. And I like that because it's more active. It's verb-oriented. It doesn't just say a box on the census form, this is my religious affiliation, but this is what I do. This is what marks my whole life. I follow Jesus. But I'm always reminding people at Harvest, if you're going to follow Christ, if you want to be a Christ follower, you have to follow Christ. You can't ask him to follow you where you're going and say, this is the life I've chosen. I need you to come with me. And, and then once in a while when we're scared, we go, you go first. <laughs> you go ahead of me, Lord, when I'm scared or when I need things to be safe. But do, does he come first always? Does this mark what our life is? Is being a Christian for you and for me following Jesus? And if we're going to follow Jesus, we've got to acknowledge this. Following him is going to lead all the way to the cross. There's no way to avoid the cross as a real part of the journey of following Jesus. Before I continue, I want you to watch a video clip, and it's just about a minute long. Some of you might recognize it from TV commercials, but uh, just watch it, and then I'll come back up and share. I don't know about you, but I'm 54. They won't have my crusty butt, even if I beg to be led into the Marine Corps. But I watch stuff like that, and it moves me. It makes me want to enlist. It makes me want to be identified with some of the values they're trying to hold up. Now, I, I know some of you are put off by military imagery, the idea of guns, the, geopolitics comes into the picture. I get all that. Um, but I think what's effective about recruitment commercials are they evoke something in us about honor, duty, movement, action, that marks something we all want to be. And I, even that last question, which way would you run? I, 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 mean, I almost feel like that's one of the things that stands in front of us all the time. Which, what kind of person do you want to be? Now, here's the thing, though. In spite of all that, the reality of military life is not easy. How many of you know someone personally who's gone through the military? Yeah, I, I know many people who have served in the military. I, I have to say, it's not an easy path. I think U.S. military recruiters might be among the best salesmen in the world. Because it's a really hard life 
there's not that much glory in it compared to the recruitment commercials, but somehow young people sign up voluntarily in the droves. I wonder how their recruitment numbers would be impacted, though, if they told the full truth, even about what it would be like the minute you get to basic training. Has anyone in here been through basic training? Just curious. It's, I've been steeped in videos watching footage from the first night, the first week of basic training this week, and I have to say, I don't think I like it. <laughs> from the minute you land, and I'm just going to use the Marine Corps because they're, the, the U.S. Marine Corps happens to have um, the most rigorous, and I, I think the other branches of the armed forces would want to fight me on this, but it's 13 weeks long. It's much longer than the other branches. And from the minute you land, you step off the bus a little bit confused, not sure where to go, and they tell you to just stand on top of those footprints. And it's not just arranged that way for no reason. You have to actually stand with your feet like this 45-degree angle. And as you stand on these footprints, you're standing where a million other recruits have stood before, a million other people who wanted to be, become Marines. And from that first moment, it is pretty much nonstop disruption for 13 weeks. There's no, hey, why don't you go to your dorm, just get situated, get, get a little, maybe bathroom break. It's nothing like that. The minute you get there, it's go, go, go. You don't even sleep that first night. As you arrive, they make you surrender all your personal belongings. This is why I still can't believe young people are signing up. They make you surrender everything, including your cell phone. You don't have any cell phone or linkage to the outside world for 13 weeks. And they make you surrender your hair, your underwear. In other words, everything that you need for the next 13 weeks, Uncle Sam will provide. Nothing of your individuality comes out, not even your hairstyle. Some of these dudes, they come to boot camp with crazy hair. I'm just like, wow, I don't know what you're thinking. You should have saved yourself some heartache and just gotten over with ahead of time. Because it all comes off and you come out looking pretty much like everyone else. You wake up at 4 a.m. every single morning. And they train you to the point of exhaustion so that by 8 p.m. when it's bedtime, does it sound attractive to anybody? An 8 p.m. bedtime and a 4 a.m. wake-up time every day. Some crazy dudes are like, yeah, that's awesome. You're not right. <laughs> 4 a.m. to 8 p.m. is not a great day. And they run you into the point where you're not sure you're going to make it. So at 8 p.m. when you put your head down, you're so thankful for the sleep. This is the part that might get most of us well, the showers are communal, and because of so much self-harm during all the stress of boot camp that happens, they've taken doors off all the toilet stalls. So you get to enjoy number two with open doors for 13 weeks. Zero privacy anywhere. And in through the entirety of boot camp, drill instructors, not because they're upset, not because they don't like you personally, but this is part of simulating the stress of a combat environment. They are yelling in your face at the top of their lungs almost all the time. What's really funny was the footage where they were calling home to let, them, let their loved ones know that they've arrived safely. And there's three sentences they have to read, and that's it. They get no other time. They can't even say hello or anything. They just read it, and that then goes, I love you, goodbye. <laughs> and the whole time a drill sergeant is yelling in your ear so the people at home can barely hear what you're saying. All of this is the reality just for the training part, not to mention the life that comes after. 
Now, don't get me wrong. There is glory in graduating and becoming a part of an elite fighting force like the U.S. Marine Corps. There's something about that where you become a part of someone and knowing that every other person wearing that uniform, men and women alike, has gone through the same experience, the same hardship. I, I was really interested to see that the, the military is doing a, a better job than a lot of, of the, um, even better than the church, in just the way that they've equalized men and women. It is crazy. The women go through everything. And I think that's great. So that by the time you come out, you feel like, hey, we are the same. If you wear this uniform, you earned it. So there's glory in it for sure. But I'll bet you that if they told the truth about how hard it would be right up front, the recruiters would not have much success with high school students who are looking for a future. You know, in that sense, Jesus is actually the worst recruiter that ever lived. He's like the anti-recruiter. Have you read the Gospels? I mean, every, every time around this year, um, around this time of the year, people in churches all over do Bible reading campaigns. And our church, we've been doing a New Testament reading plan for a while, where you read one chapter of the New Testament every weekday for the whole year. And so we're in the Gospels, and I'm noticing something very interesting about Jesus. Every time people approach him, moved and inspired, wanting for some reason to follow him, he almost never goes, awesome! That's what I would do. I mean, right now it's really hard to find volunteers. Church leaders are struggling to, to fulfill all the, the needs of the church because people are dropping off like flies. So if anyone just came up to us and said, hey, I'm really moved. I want to follow Jesus. Tell, just tell me what to do. I would grab him and be like, let's go. Jesus more like took the tone of, are you sure? Because it's going to be really hard. It's going to cost you a lot. On one occasion, a group of men approached Jesus while he and his disciples were traveling down the road. They had been moved by something he taught. They had heard the rumors about his ministry, and they were really drawn to him. And you know what that feels like when you admire someone, when you're moved or touched by something they said or did, and you're drawn to them magnetically. And so these men approached Jesus wanting to follow him, and Jesus responds to them in ways that are really strange to me. I think he does this because he knows the difference between impulse and intent. Every single time I've ever purchased a gym membership, it was on impulse. Always. I, I even joked that the last time I owned a lifetime membership, I went once to get my photo taken for the ID. And when I turned it in, like, this is so new looking. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I haven't used it. There's a difference between impulse and intent. They look the same on the surface, but they mean very different things. They have very different implications. This encounter between Jesus and these men is recorded for us in Luke 9, and they're just paired nicely, two verses at a time. One shows what the guy says, and the other shows Jesus' response, and it's really weird. First guy says, I will follow you wherever you go. Have you ever felt like that about someone? I don't care where you take me, man. If you're going, I'm going with you. I felt that way about human leaders. I felt that way about God. And, and Jesus says this to him. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Just think, what? <laughs> I just said I'd follow you wherever you go. Why are you talking about animals' homes? I, basically, Jesus is saying, you can follow me, but things you're used to, things like having a place to live, that's done now. I'm homeless. If you're going to follow me, 
It's going to be constantly figuring out where to lay our heads and where we're going to get food. Another man, he says to him, follow me. But the man replies to Jesus, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Totally reasonable request. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Third guy comes up, must have not been paying attention. <laughs> so at that point, I just be like, I'm not saying it. It's, you know, but, but he comes up to Jesus. He says, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. That's the most reasonable thing I can imagine. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. You can see how easy it would be for us today as Christian leaders to weaponize passages like this, start to equate the church or us with Jesus and say, hey, if you're going to get serious, you have to go all out. You have to give up everything. It is so easy to misuse passages like this to create church abuse. It's been done. Some of us have lived through it. But here's the truth about statements like this. They weren't devised by people looking to weaponize God's authority. This was spoken by Jesus Christ himself as his direct response to men who wanted to follow him. He's not condemning home ownership. He's not discouraging love for our families. He's not saying that he wants to be the only priority in our lives. But here's what he is saying. That if you want to follow him, at some point, despite your best efforts, following him will lead you to have to prioritize him above the ones you love most. Those other priorities, priorities that everyone in society would affirm, things that are reasonable and righteous, even morally and biblically upheld in other places, have to take a back seat at some point. I don't think it's healthy to seek out those kinds of dilemmas where we have to choose one thing over another. It's wise for us to do our best to love our families, to take care of ourselves, to have a stable environment to live in. But if we're going to be serious about following Jesus, at some point what he's saying is, I will have to come first, and that will mean other things that are incredibly important are going to have to come second. There's no other way to present this journey to people than that. And what I love about Jesus is he doesn't withhold the bad parts up front. He tells you the full truth about what it's going to cost. Because he doesn't want fans following him on an impulse. He wants people who really understand this and have counted the cost and are ready. That means fewer followers on the front end, but more of them make it to the end of the journey because they've really thought about what they're getting into. After I spoke at that last ICC retreat, um, I, I asked Johan to give me some exercises to do because I wanted to get serious about my fitness. And then I realized he's insane. And he, he gave me like his light exercises, which were unsustainable for me. And I just quit. And I realized that I had opened my mouth and asked him for that um, on, a, on an impulse. I didn't really count the cost of just how imbalanced that man's brain is. <laughs> uh, or how little I want to mimic his lifestyle, <clears throat> because I have a job. 
in light of all that, I, re I recognize how easy it is to be moved to action by an impulse, and yet how flimsy that becomes when the hard stuff really hits. Jesus, in the passage that we're looking at today, Matthew 10, in verse 37, tackles one of the most sacred loves in the human experience. It's almost offensive that he would go here. If he were not God, this would be very dangerous teaching, very potentially abusive teaching, if he were not God. If any person ever says stuff like this to you, run for the hills. Run as fast as you can. But if Jesus, the Son of God, says this to you, you've got to pause and deal with that at some deep level between you and him. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I mean, he tackles the most sacred instinctual love there is. You don't even have to be human to know this love. Even mammals, even invertebrates seem to have some natural instinct to protect their young. This linkage between parents and children is so sacred, and even if it causes pain, even if it goes terribly wrong, it shows you how important it is because that failure of that love marks you for the rest of their life. It knocks you off kilter forever. And yet Jesus takes that most sacred love and he uses that as a measuring stick and he says, this is what it's like to follow me. Is that if you're going to follow me, you must love me even more than you love your mother and your father or your son or your daughter. We have to be careful how we understand this. This is not a power play by an insecure Jesus. He's not saying, I just want you to feel some emotion for me more than other people. But what he's saying is, in saying yes to him, at some point you will have to say no to your loved ones. Every person who ever became a pastor disappointed their parents in some level. I'm just going to tell you that right now. That's the hardest conversation to have, uh, mom and dad. Maybe the harder conversation is the person who's going to marry a pastor, man or woman. I mean, you're just saying, uh, mom and dad, I know you had plans for me to be your retirement plan, but I'm going to be poor. And life is going to be hard. At some point, even if you don't go into vocational ministry, if you're serious about saying yes to Jesus, you're going to have to say no to other things. And I'm discovering that that's true of any great endeavor. If you're really serious about saying yes to making a fortune, to starting a company, to getting the perfect body or the perfect house or whatever it is, it's not going to come cheaply. At some point, saying yes to things that are ultimate force us to say no to things that are not. You, you can't build a life that avoids that. You could try, but you won't succeed. To say an ultimate yes to an ultimate thing requires us at some point to say no to things that are less than the ultimate. That doesn't render them unimportant. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try. But at some point, if you're very serious, it will happen. 
This is about more than sentiment. Jesus isn't asking us to feel emotional love more for him than for our family members. That's not what he's after here, is the way our, some of our songs sound like they're country western songs ported over into a religious setting. The way they make me sing to Jesus, it's like he's not my lover, he's, he's my king, he's my God, my savior. The love for him is a little different than that. The love I feel for my parents, the love I feel for my children, that's a very deep, important love to me, but it doesn't feel the same as the love I have for Jesus. This is not a competition of sentiment, but here's what he's saying. It, to really love me is to treasure me and my kingdom more than you treasure anything or anyone else. It is how we order our lives and decide what sacrifices we will make and what sacrifices we will not. And the reason I look like this and Joe looks like that is because I won't sacrifice certain things. The reason you have your bank account and I have mine is because there's different things we've sacrificed. It's not a comparison of who's better or worse. I'm saying our, every one of us in this room, our lives tell the story of how we've ordered the, the hierarchy of sacrifices. The things that truly matter. And what Jesus is calling these men to, and what he's calling us to, is if you want to follow me, you need to know that I have to be at the start of this journey, the one you treasure most. This matters because he's not just calling us to go to heaven when we die, but he's calling us to a lifetime spent building a kingdom for him on this earth that will ultimately be the kingdom we enjoy forever. And it's a kingdom that this broken world does not want. It's pronounced more than ever now, isn't it? The, the world certainly doesn't want the church. The church is becoming less and less a force in our society. We have a smaller and smaller voice in the shaping of our culture and of the political realm. We are really becoming irrelevant in so many ways. And that's partly because the world does not want this. This Christ, this cross, this kingdom, what we together in the church represent, the world doesn't want it. And if we're going to build that kingdom in this broken and hostile world, we're going to have to be serious men and women. It's not going to be a kingdom built by people who are easily scared away. And he's saying, if you're going to follow me, you've got to treasure this so much that no matter what barriers rise, you will crash through them because you have found in this kingdom a greater treasure than anything else you could pursue with your life. If you want to follow Jesus, you're going to have to be willing at some point to pay a price to follow. That's a hard teaching today because in the established Western evangelical church, we have basically baked our cake and are eating it too. We have formed a subculture, and I'm part of it. I'm not judging anyone else here. I am incredibly comfortable for being someone who said yes to a ministry calling. I can afford gym memberships I don't even use. That's how much of a baller I am. <laughs> We've built very comfortable lives, and that doesn't mean there's no struggle. But we have had 
so much of what we yearn for. And it has insulated our hearts. And it makes it very hard to have hard conversations about sacrifice. In June of 2001, I joined a group of uh, Asian American pastors from all over the country. Uh, about 20 of us traveled to South Korea to see what we could learn about spirituality from the motherland. Most of us came back kind of depressed, to be honest with you. <laughs> I, it wasn't a great trip for me in terms of seeing the church. I didn't find a lot I wanted to emulate there. But the focus on prayer definitely was something that I really carried back with me. But this was the most meaningful place for me on that whole trip. It's a place called the Yanghua Jin Foreigner's Cemetery. It's in Seoul on a hill, looking down towards the city. And as I walked among the graves there, among the graves of 83 missionaries who were buried there, I realized firsthand how much my own faith is rooted in the sacrifice of men and women who considered the kingdom of Christ worth more even than their own lives. These are not the first missionaries to die on a mission field. What's remarkable to me is that there was a disease called cholera that was sweeping Korea, and the Westerners coming over had no immunity to it. And as soon as they arrived, many of them got sick, and within months of their arrival, they were being buried. And yet, immediately upon news of their passing, another family would pack their bags, get on a ship, and come over to replace them. And so you see the story being written in the dates on the headstones. One after another after another, you can almost name which families came in what succession. And I can't understand that at all. On a human level, that boggles my mind that people knowing the fate that befell those who went ahead of them would still go. What really moved me to tears was when I stumbled upon this section where there are 38 graves of children, most of them under four years old. The children had even less immunity to this disease. It devastated them. And these parents would often lay their children to rest, only to be taken by illness themselves shortly after. An entire family wiped out. And for what, people said. How could this be worth it? And the thing that perplexed everyone was, how could any family then grab their kids, pack their things, and go after them to take the place of those who had fallen? How can that be? Some even argue that this was reckless and irresponsible. And at some level, if you take God out of the picture, if you don't believe in any of the things we talk about in Scripture, that is exactly what that is. It's reckless. It's irresponsible. It strikes me how weird it is to talk about this in the midst of a pandemic where every day we are making decisions based on our reaction to a disease. And yet what I see here is not recklessness and irresponsibility, but a most beautiful expression of the worth of the kingdom of Christ. And it's not just something distantly removed. My paternal grandmother, who was the first Christian in my entire extended line, uh, uh, my family line, she was led to Christ through the ministry of such people. And she was so captivated 
by the truth of the gospel of Jesus, by the scriptures she read, that she cast a spiritual influence over an entire family for generations. I still believe that my paternal grandmother is the most important spiritual figure in our entire family tree, that her box on that tree should be engraved in gold. She saw the worth of Christ, and her heritage is mine, but hers is rooted in those graves. Jesus calls us to love him and treasure him more even than the lives of our families. But then he says one last thing, and I hope you'll stay with me for the rest of this. He says, I want you to love me even more than you love yourself. Because the truth is, some people don't care that much for their families, but they care an awful lot for themselves. Maybe some of us know a person like that. In Luke 9.23, Jesus gives this as an invitation. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple, so this is a recruitment conversation, whoever would like to be my disciple, here's the, quali here's the qualification, they must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. So here, it's an invitation but what's interesting in the Matthew 10, 38, the passage we're looking at, is he now shifts that same statement and makes it an evaluation. It's no longer an invitation. He's saying, you've already started the journey. Here's how I evaluate you. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. We'll get to that phrase, not worthy of me, because that's something you can't just ignore. It's, it's a hard thing. we got to get through it. I want to talk a moment about crosses. For most of us, we talk about a cross to bear in terms of an annoyance or a hardship we can't escape. So I remember um, a friend of mine in college saying, I have this one roommate. This dude's nuts, but he's my cross to bear. I have bad eyesight, not nearly as bad as Steve's, but it's bad enough that I'm annoyed constantly by my eyesight and my bum knee. And I call them sometimes my cross to bear because I can't do anything about it and it affects me every day and I gotta carry it. And at some, at some level, I don't think that's totally inappropriate. But the cross of Jesus, which he invites us to pick up, is much more serious than an annoyance we have to live with. It's not ultimately a symbol of hardship, but it's a symbol of worship. And you've gotta get that straight in your mind. The cross is not about how much you're willing to suffer because some people in a weird way like suffering. They love the burn. They love the hardship. They like a good cry. I don't like any of those things. Hardship sucks. Can I get an amen from at least one person? What kind of crazy... You guys like hardship? Hardship sucks. I don't know if you can say that at this church, but I'm saying it because nobody likes hardship. But the cross of Jesus, which he invites us to pick up, isn't just a measure of how much hardship you can tolerate. That's not what it's about. It's a symbol of worship. And worship is ultimately a statement about the worthiness of someone or something. The cross is a symbol of ultimate love 
that leads to ultimate obedience. It's not about how strong or tough or resilient, how much you can bear. It is about how much you love and treasure this Jesus and his kingdom so that for his sake, you will actually put up with just about anything. You will give up just about anything. Now, the thing is, as a Christian, I read this, and I'm very quick to assume I'm okay because I could point to a dozen crosses I'm carrying willingly and joyfully. Things that I can't do. I can honestly admit I can't pay for my kid's college. Sorry, Zoe. My daughter Zoe came with me. I can't pay for your college. I can't do that and still honor some of the other commitments I believe God has called us to. But I'm trusting that you and your three siblings will be smart enough and industrious enough to work hard and pay back your loans. Amen. That's how I sleep at night. But I'm carrying that because it bothers me all the time that I can't. It bothers my wife even more that we can't. We're not, we're not saying casually, oh, yeah, we're so glad we don't have to worry about that. I hate it. And there are other things I could point to. Crosses we carry willingly, publicly, visibly. But here's what I'm discovering over the course of my life is that in every season, there are also secret crosses that nobody else has to know about that I just won't carry because those will cost me or my family too much. And so instead of picking up that cross, that one secret cross, which in the end is the truth about my devotion to Christ and his kingdom, I won't pick up that cross and instead, like a good magician, I will redirect and I'll say, look at these other crosses I'm carrying so joyfully. I do all of this for the Lord. Get off my back. And yet that secret cross, which I won't pick up because that one costs too much. I cannot forgive that person. I absolutely refuse to go there. I can't let my children say yes to that. I can't. I won't. I w and there's secret crosses at every season of my life. But you throw up enough small crosses, the big one you won't carry kind of fades into the background. I'm not saying this to beat anybody up. The last thing you need to do is feel guilty in response to some middle-aged Korean dude. Like, th there's no reason for you to hear this is coming from me. I'm simply helping you think through where you and, and the Lord are in all of this. Are there secret crosses in your heart that even though, it, and the issue is not, do you know if this is what God wants? Do you know if this is the right thing? But if I go there, it will cost me more than I'm willing to bear. And that's where I think the focus belongs. Can you let go? Can you walk forward? Can you embrace? Can you do that thing which you know the Lord is calling you to for the sake of his divine, unusual kingdom which the world needs but rejects? Because if we won't go there, then all we will model is the perfect middle-class suburban life. The kind of life that makes people envy our social media feeds, want the life we have, think, how, how, how do I join that church? Because then everyone there's got it perfectly put together. And yet it won't be the truth. 
Let me, I, I'm going to run out of time here, so let me just bring this to a close. He says, if you won't carry your cross every day and follow me, you are not worthy of me. And that's, that feels to me like such a harsh way. I, I wish I could have been J Jesus' proofreader. Just kind of go, all right, Lord, uh, I'm going to be your PR guy. We've got to soften that a little. That's too much. Not worthy of me. Can you say something like, then you need to grow. You need to take some time and reflect. But he goes, no, if you're going to do it this way, if you're not going to pick up this cross, you are not worthy of me. And so i got to figure out, what does that mean? How do I understand and receive something like that. Let me give you an analogy that might help. It's not a perfect analogy, but suppose your daughter is crazy about a boy. She thinks this guy is just the bee's knees. How old am I that I just said the bee's knees? Okay. She's just nuts about him. She thinks, oh, my, her greatest worry is I'm not, he's going to leave me. He's going to like someone else. I'm not worthy of him. As her dad, what am I thinking? Forget whether you're worthy of him. Is he worthy of you? I'm sorry, the other way around. <laughs> He's, you're, you're worth so much more. I'm worried more if he measures up to you, not the other way around. So suppose I want to evaluate this young man a little, and I say, oh, tell me about your last date. Um, wasn't it last night? And what if she says to me, yeah, we were supposed to meet last night, but he didn't show up. Uh, he said that he was really sleepy, so he just took a nap. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, why don't you see if he'll pick you up and take you out to a, a movie or something tonight? Yeah, I think I have to drive, actually, because he just got a new car, and he hates putting miles on his new car, so he doesn't want to pick me up. Oh, okay, all right. Well, at least make sure he pays for the movie. Yeah, actually, um, he's saving up for a PS5, so he really doesn't like spending money right now. Now, it's hard to call any of that immoral. Self-care is important. If you're sleepy, rest, man. Stewarding your possessions is a good idea. Don't put unnecessary miles on your car. And if you've got something you want to save up for, by all means, sacrifice and save up. But what does the story of this man tell me? It's not that he's immoral. What it tells me is he loves himself way more than he likes my daughter. He's preserving himself and won't lose anything significant for her sake. And yeah, maybe it's because it's a new relationship. Whatever. Don't press the analogy too far. <laughs> but that story tells me, and here's what I would say. Sweetheart, is he... <laughs> is this young man worthy of my daughter? Does he deserve you? Is he the one? And I would tell her, this is one of the things you're going to learn growing up. Is that when someone says they love you, it costs nothing. Nothing at all. But the truth of that claim is seen in what they are willing to devote to that love. To give up because they've treasured you more than they treasured themselves. It is in this sense I believe Jesus says, you are not worthy of me if you do this because this is a kingdom and this is a movement fueled by people who have seen the real me and what I have promised to them and they have beheld me and respond to me. 
They see me as I am, they treasure me for who I am, and they love me even more than they love themselves. And such people, such men and women, will build my kingdom. Less than that will not build the kingdom because this is not going to be an easy thing to do. I watched a video recently of a man making a speech at a very prestigious liberal arts college and this young white man was making an impassioned plea about systemic injustice and um, prejudice and privilege and all that. And he was making a very, very reasoned and not argumentative case. And so the speaker said, I accept that some of that could be true. If I grant you your position, can I ask you one thing? As a, a white male, twice benefiting from this illicit privilege that you have so eloquently described, Will you give up your seat at this prestigious university for someone of color who was overlooked? Let's not be generous with other people's spots at the university. Will you give up yours? I know how hard you worked to get here, what you've accomplished to be here. Will you give up your seat to stand up for that cause? And the young man was not willing to make that commitment. I hope I haven't triggered a whole bunch of other thoughts about the politics of that because I don't care about the politics of it. I raise that story for a reason. Therein is the truth of how things change. It's easy to have opinions and make arguments and be really generous with other people's lives. But in the end, the real question is, will you give up yours for this thing which you treasure, which you're convinced is so true? Must it be a truth borne by everyone else will be a truth that you will bear, no matter what it costs. Hashtag activism. Well-reasoned arguments alone will not build the kingdom of Christ in a broken world. And I so treasure the lives at my church, people, men and women, these days especially women, I'm seeing more and more, I'm hearing more and more how much they've given up to continue in the church, to remain people of faith. And some of them have courageously stood up and vocalized at great risk what they're going through. And that moves me deeply. That's the kind of courage that, that Christ is looking for. It's not making noise about issues. It's putting yourself right there and saying, I don't know where this is going to go, but I'm willing to pick up my cross. And such people, such women, such men, they build the kingdom of Christ with him. I'll leave you with this last thought. I lingered longest in front of the grave of a woman named Ruby Rachel Kendrick. At the age of 25, she was dying of appendicitis she came from Plano, Texas. Had she stayed home, likely she would have survived a burst appendix. But here in this underdeveloped Asian nation, this thing was killing her. And yet, at the age of 25, instead of bitterness and regret, she says, as among her last words, if I had a thousand lives, Korea should have them all. And I linger there thinking, I'm a Christ follower today, in part because of that woman, 
and men and women just like her who loved Jesus and considered his gospel and his kingdom worth even more than their own lives. That is something the world will take notice of. Our all-caps rants are not. But that, cross-carrying, that changes things. That honors the living Christ. I want to invite you to just bow with me for a moment. I want to pray for us. Jesus, this is a heavy teaching. And if I've said anything which you don't want to linger in the hearts and minds of my brothers and sisters, I pray that you will cause forgetfulness. But I also pray, Holy Spirit, that it would be you and your voice, not mine, which would stir up reflection and even agitation. To be called your followers is a great honor. It is not something that comes so cheaply, although it is free. So make us women and men who don't just talk a good game, but we will pick up this cross because we have seen you. Oh, we treasure you. We know who you are and what you are worth. Make us men and women who will love you and treasure you even more than our precious families or our very lives. We want the world to see this because it points to your worthiness. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would make us a church of cross carriers, fully devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, our King of Kings. We pray in your name. Amen.